God. Morning, church. Today's Bible passage that we will expound on occurs in an intimate setting. So I titled it Heart to Heart Talk. Uh, Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. And Jesus was left with the true disciples, the 11 disciples. And this is a special time where Jesus embarks on a heart-to-heart talk with the disciples in preparation for what is to come, which is Jesus' crucifixion. So beginning in the passage today, chapter 13, verse 31, and all the way to the end of chapter 16, the whole section is commonly called the Upper Room Discourses. Upper Room Discourses is just a series of teaching that Jesus shared with the disciples in the Upper Room. You know, we don't use that term as much nowadays. What is Upper Room? Well, Upper Room is usually on the flat rooftop of a typical home in Palestine. It is either open air or covered by some sort of canopy. And it is accessible from outside of the home through a staircase all the way to the top. And Jesus has chosen the privacy of the upper room to give a heart-to-heart talk to the true disciples before he goes to the cross. And what was his focus? As I read to you that passage, look for the focus of Jesus. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. Open your Bible or in your electronic format and follow along. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot come. You, can, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Even as you follow along in the passage or you read along with me, you can see three focus that Jesus was talking about. First of all, the glory of God. And secondly, loving one another. And thirdly, the denial of Peter. Let's begin with the moment of glory, verses 31 and 32 in my first point with you. It says, when it has gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In that two short verses, glory glorified, is mentioned five times, and definitely this is the focus on these two verses here. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And the title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It happens 85 times. That's how frequent it happened in the four Gospels when Jesus called himself, I'm the Son of Man. 
But what does it mean? To call himself Son of Man is a title of the incarnate Christ, who is the representative of humanity before God and the representative of deity in human life, meaning he is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator who will reconcile us with the Heavenly Father. So he is called Son of Man. And verse 31 says, the Son of Man will glorify the Father, and the Father will glorify the Son. So how would Jesus glorify the Father? And we read in the passage through the preaching of the Gospel of John, we understand that by Jesus' complete obedience to the Father's will through his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and glorification in heaven. Jesus revealed the power of God through signs and wonders. He revealed the love of God by washing the disciples' feet. Now he has come to the highest place to reveal the Father's glory, which will be on the cross. It is on the cross that Jesus' love, the love of God for the whole world, is clearly and most powerfully manifested over there. And it is consistent with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus obeyed the Father's will by glorifying the Father. Then how does the Father glorify Jesus? Well, by the resurrection and ascension of the Son. God raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, you are familiar with that passage. And the disciples will not have to wait long to see the Son's glory, because in verse 32 says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It is truly at once, because in a few hours, Jesus will be arrested. In a few hours, he will be on trial, and then detained overnight, and the next day, he will be crucified. All this happened within 10 hours or so. The glory of God, the moment of glory where God the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. We, we, we use glory of God and glorify God all the time. But what do you mean by the glory of God? The glory of God is the visible display of God's attributes. Attributes like God is holy, God is sovereign, God is omnipresent. When it is being displayed visibly, manifested to us, that's the glory of God. And you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus, our response to his visible display of these attributes, either in words or deeds, is how we glorify God. And you have just done that through the singing and praises. When the song tells you God is great, God is glorious, He loves you, and then we sing praises to Him and say, we will submit to you, we will follow you, that's glorifying God. And the Bible tells us that God's glory is manifested in His creation. That's probably the most visible place that we can feel and see and even touch. 
Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The whole creation manifests the glory of God. But you know what? We are human beings. We are created for God's glory. You and I are made to glorify God. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, God says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You and I are made to glorify God. This is a moment of glory for Jesus. But you sitting there and me standing here naturally will ask, but where is God's glory in that moment? Jesus was betrayed by Judas. When he was arrested, his disciples would desert him. He would later be crucified, died in an excruciating and a humiliating death. And he would be buried. That's the end. Where is that glory? Well, the glory is manifested when God turns that seemingly tragic ending into the glory of Easter when Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter, who preached after Jesus' resurrection and experienced that power personally, he preached to the crowd in Acts chapter 2 and said, This Jesus, deliver up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The giver of life, the creator, cannot be held by death. He overcome death and sin. And with that, redemption is accomplished. The way to God is established. Forgiveness of sins is possible. Reconciliation with God can now happen. Hallelujah. Glory. That's the moment of glory. From where we read and see and feel, we see that as a tragic ending and a failure. But God, in His sovereign plan for redemption of mankind, of human race, God turns that around and makes it the glory moment, the glorious moment. So, brothers and sisters, as we talk about the glory, the moment of glory, and how to glorify God, when God reveals His sovereignty, our response in glorifying God should be, He must increase, I must decrease, just like John the Baptist. God is number one, always. We are number two, always. That's what it means by He must increase, I must decrease. So when God reveals His love, our response in glorifying God should be with a heart of thanksgiving, praising forever the goodness of God and worshiping Him. And when God reveals His omnipresence, that He is with us wherever, anytime, our response in glorifying God should be to live by faith and not by sight and not be overtaken by anxiety and fear. And when God reveals His holiness, our response in glorifying God 
is to be set apart for His purpose. Because holiness means you are different, you are transcendent. When we are holy people, not just about behavior and moral issues, when we are holy people, we are talking about God, redeemers, and set us apart for His glory and for His purpose. That's what is church. Church uh, people call from this world, set apart for His purpose and for His glory. The moment of glory, beautiful moment of glory. Then Jesus moved to the second section, the command to love one another that we are so familiar. Verses 33 to 35. He says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus used a very affectionate expression, usually used by the Jewish rabbi, the Jew, Jewish teachers, to their students to show the intimacy of their relationship. But Jesus' mission goes beyond the cross. He will depart the world and go back to the heavenly place to prepare a place for the disciples and for us too. And then he will come and take us to be with the Father. So in Jesus' glorification, his ascension, he will ascend to the Father and there will be a temporary separation from his disciples. And the disciples have seen Jesus' love for them during his earthly ministry. And most recently in his washing of their feet. But they would only understand the death of God's love through the cross. And it is in that anticipation that Jesus will give that new commandment, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by that, all people, not just Christians, not just people who are friendly Christians, but all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not just love, we all have love in some degrees, different degrees, but we all have love. But love for one another is what stands out for people to recognize that we are Jesus' followers. You know, the new commandment that Jesus talked about, to love one another, is not really, really new in that sense, because in Leviticus chapter 19, in the law of Moses, it was mentioned about loving one another. Chapter 19, verse 18 in Leviticus says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another is something that was being taught in the Old Testament. But to love one another as Jesus have loved them is something new. It is a new and higher standard. You will love each other as Jesus has loved you. And how do we love one another as Jesus has loved us? Is that even possible? It can only happen by the new covenant that Jesus would ratify with his blood shed on the cross that brings about transformation by the renewing of the mind. 
It is what Ezekiel prophesies in chapter 36 when God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Because a heart of stone has no response to any prompting or calling. But a heart of flesh is alive and will obey the giver of life, our Lord Jesus. And he says, and I will put my spirit within you, the spirit to nudge you, the spirit to prompt you, the spirit to remind you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you have a new heart, when you have a new spirit, when you have a heart of flesh, and the spirit within you will prompt you and cause you to obey God's word and to love each other as Jesus has loved us. So it is only by God's transforming grace that believers can love one another as Jesus has loved them. That's when we begin to see with the eyes of Jesus. That's when we begin to love with the heart of Jesus. And it can only happen when transformation, grace falls upon us. And what kind of a love is that, that Jesus loves us? Jesus' love is manifested in his obedience to the Father's will. We just talked about that in the first point, the moment of glory. The disciples then must reflect the same obedience. Jesus' most immediate obedience was the washing of the disciples' feet, a life of servanthood and sacrifice. And so must we as his disciples. And you remember, even in that evening, the disciples were engaged in a competitive spirit, trying to find out who is the greatest among them. And that will divide the community if there is no love. And, that, and this new commandment comes in a very important time when Jesus prepares them, not only for his crucifixion, but also for his ascension, that he will not be there bodily with them. And to carry on that mission, to carry forward that great commission, they have to learn how to love one another as Jesus have loved them. So love must characterize the disciples. A love that is patterned after the generous and loving act of God that saves his people. But think about this. Can love be commanded? Can love be commanded? Can you demand love? Well, you can demand, but most likely others will not respond. Love can only be modeled. So Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Is it possible? Just as I have loved you. The commandment cannot stand alone to love each other until the model of love is being manifested to the disciples. And Jesus did that for them. Unless you are loved, it is almost impossible to love others because you never understand what love is. They are a community of shared interest, activities, like-minded people, like gardening, you know, a community of gardening, a group of musicians together, a political group, 
The church is called to be, is to be called a community of love above all else. We are most Christian-like. We are most Christ-like when we love one another. No, 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 get, get me right. Hear it again. You didn't hear it. Hear it again. We are most Christian-like. We are most Christ-like when we love one another. It's, it's not even love the world. It's not even love the community. If when Christians get together and get serious with one another and truly love one another, Christians among Christians, with the love of Jesus that was demonstrated on the cross, then all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people includes everyone. Whether you are friendly Christians, anti-Christians, hostile to Christians, they will actually see that you belong to Jesus because you truly love one another. Because love is a universal language, whether spoken or unspoken. And Jesus said, if you have love for one another, all of us have love in some ways, but love for one another is what stands out. Is most Christ-like. Is most Christian-like. You know, to love one another is a tough call. Because we need to battle selfishness, ego, pride, constantly. You better with that. I better with that every day. See, when I am loved, I feel great. Everybody loves. You love to be loved. When I love myself. That's the most natural things to do, right? We, we all know how to protect ourselves, preserve ourselves, nurture ourselves easily. Nobody taught you that. You, you know how to love yourself. But love one another, that's, that's tough. You know, I might be able to love you if it is according to my own way. You don't have to take it. But to love according to Jesus' way, sacrificially, Humbly, for the long haul, that's almost impossible. Because we basically, we are basically self-centered. We know how to love ourselves, but to love for one another, it's always a challenge. Have you, have you, have you noticed how they push the shopping carts in Costco? It's like driving on a freeway. Okay, the, I have to say that the aisles in Costco are pretty wide. You can actually, if you drive nicely, everybody according to the, to the right way, you can have three carts in most of the aisles can pass through. But each driver, have you noticed? Exhibit their own unique driving pattern. Many turn suddenly without flashing signals. I know there's no signal on the shopping carts, but at least you watch someone and not bump into the shopping carts, right? Because they were, they were reading the signs on the discount items and all that. They were not paying attention. Uh, many exhibit rec reckless driving because they are distracted by the shopping items. And they often ended up colliding or rear-ended other shopping carts or worse, the driver. And when you 
heel get hit by those shopping carts, it's pretty painful. And I have seen many illegal parking. <laughs> have you noticed that? They park right in the middle of the aisle, and the driver is nowhere to be found. <laughs> you don't want to touch that. You don't want to push that. You might offend a person, but you can't find them. And others, nicer drivers, they park along the side. Thank God. But the front or the back protruded. They didn't park parallel to the aisle. So the, the, the front is protruded. So when there's another car on the other side, you still can't get through, right? And again, the driver disappeared. You can't find the driver. See, this, this driver just drive the way they wanted to the frustration of those who follow the California driver's handbook. And Jesus told his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. That's the standard. That's hard. That's hard. No wonder Jesus called his disciples and said, Want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. When your ego is too big, when your self is too big, it's hard to love one another. Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Die to yourself and live for Jesus. Take up your cross, then follow me. So Jesus told his disciples to love one another as he has loved them. You know what? If we learn how to do it, it will really improve team relationship, small groups relationships, our three congregations relationships, and it improves even spousal relationships in a family. Jesus talked about the moment of glory. He gave a command to love one another. And finally, in verses 36 to 38, he gave a prediction of denial of Peter. 36 to 38, so Simon Peter, having heard Jesus say, love one another as Jesus has loved them, he wanted to express that love and say, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I want to go all the way with you. You know, Peter's denial of Christ is another blow to Jesus' earthly ministry, at least from a human perspective. He has a face crucifixion. He was betrayed by Judas. Judas just stepped out and ready to, to sell Jesus. Now the denial of Peter, one of his favorite disciples. It is like one crisis after another. But it was not God's will for Peter to follow Jesus through death into heaven. It will come later. And Jesus' answer implied that Peter had asked his question so he could accompany Jesus wherever he was going. That's his love for Jesus. You say, well, love, love one another. This is my love for you. I want to follow you all the way, wherever you go. And this is Peter's declaration of his, of his love for Jesus indirectly. He didn't say, I love you, but I will follow you, Jesus, all the way, wherever you are, even death. He was expressing his affection for and committed commitment to Jesus. Let's be fair to Peter. He was sincere. 
when he stated that he wanted to die for Jesus. But you know what? Sincerity was not enough to sustain him. He grossly underestimated his own weakness and what Jesus' death entailed. Peter spoke of laying down his life for Jesus. But it has to be Jesus who first laid down his life for Peter for him to fully grasp the love of Jesus so that he'll be willing to follow Jesus all the way and ultimately to be martyred. It was clearly taught in the Bible in Matthew 10 when Jesus said, So everyone who acknowledged me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And Peter has to go through that trial for him to be strengthened and for him to again be the spokesperson for the whole apostles. And you remember in the Old Testament, the prophet Balaam, he was reminded by a donkey not to pronounce curse on God's chosen people. And here, Peter will be reminded by a rooster on his unkept promise. Verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You know, it is so easy to confess Jesus as Lord in the church, naturally. That's the church language. That's what is expected. But when we are placed under a supervisor, whom you know is strongly biased against Christians, or you are placed and work among colleagues who have been all along vocal against church stand, church position on some social issues, and we tend to remain quiet and withdraw. That's when the rubber hits the road, right? I want to challenge you Christians in the marketplace and other places that we need to reclaim our rightful place as witnesses of Jesus. We need to engage the secular world respectfully but truthfully. You need a lot of prayers, wisdom, and discernment. And every case and every situation is different. But withdrawal, withdrawal is not one of the options. So my message for you today is summarized in this sentence here. The glorified Christ continues to receive glory when his followers love one another and acknowledge his lordship. When we continue to exercise love for one another as Jesus loved us, when we acknowledge his lordship and not deny him, he continues to receive glory. What is the application for this passage for us today? Just two areas I want to share with you. First of all, the glorified Christ continues to receive glory from his children implies that his glory is still visible to us today, right? But many of you sitting there including me standing here sometimes, feel that God has been absent for a long time. Our world is so, so bad, in such a bad shape for such a long time. Where, where is God? And we cry for God to please show up. Show up, God. 
and do something about this world and the condition of the world. And you know what Jesus, how, how Jesus will answer you? Jesus says, I did. I was at the cross giving out my life so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. I walked out the tomb to make it an empty tomb so that you can celebrate Easter. I am in your Bible that you read. Because for heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You read about me in the Bible, if you read it. Jesus said, I'm walking among the churches, for you are my weaknesses. Remember? You are my weaknesses. And when you witness, people know that I show up. Jesus said, I'm sitting on the right hand of the Father, interceding for you right now. Interceding for you. Jesus says, I left my footprint in the universe. Just, just look at the images sent back by James Webb Space Telescope. It was amazing. But with all your wows and ahs and exclamations, marks, when you, when you see all these images and pictures, that's only a fraction of the whole universe. And you are already overwhelmed by the greatness of the Creator who made all this. See, Jesus is saying to you and me, I was there, I am here, and I will be there for you. Always. And Jesus said, my question for you is, where have you been lately? But where have you been in your relationship with me? That might be something that you and I sitting there needs to answer. Now the question is turned to you. Secondly, I want to apply that to loving one another. Now, why is love so hard? It is because we are all hungry for love. But the hunger goes in one direction only. Love me. Care for me. Make me special. Pamper me. Buy things for me. Honor me. Write to me. Text me. The more, the merrier. But when I love someone else, <laughs> the feeling is not always positive. And you know that. At times, it can even be painful. So why is it so hard to love one another? The biggest obstacle to love one another is me. I get in the way of love. That's why it's so hard to love one another. My ego, my dignity, my comfort, my way, my sense of control, my position as an immigrant, my face, you know, gets in the way of love. And that's why it's so hard to love one another. Only the sacrificial love of Jesus that he demonstrated on the cross gives us that impetus, gives us that impetus 
to love one another. Today, I want to challenge you to love someone who is difficult. Love someone who is difficult with the love of Jesus today and see how the love of Jesus transforms your relationship. Would you try that? Love one another, a new commandment I give to you so that the world will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let us pray. Oh Lord, this is an easy sermon to preach, but Lord, we all acknowledge that it is so hard to practice, to lift out, to apply. And we acknowledge, we confess that many, many times we have failed. So today, as we come before you, we ask our Lord Jesus, increase our love. And allow us to experience God's amazing grace and the love of Christ on the cross in a new way, in a fuller way, so that with that abundance of love from Jesus, we can share that with others. Because our love is so, so impoverished. While our church is known for youth ministry, our church may be known for a Bible teaching church, but Lord, I pray that of all things, our church will be known for love, a community of love, a truthful love, even tough love, tender love, but nevertheless, a church of love because that will show the world whether they are friendly to us or hostile to us that we are truly disciples of Jesus. So help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.